Welcome to the 52nd edition of the Old Grab Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Schleck, and I'll be joined this evening by my co-host, Holly Fishburne West, and we will be interviewing our, our classmate, Heather Burris, company I-4. Right. Welcome to the uh, 52nd edition Old Grab Podcast. Heather, that's quite a walk-up song. That is quite a walk-up song. You got to give me the story behind that walk-up song. What? So it's the name of it is Improvised Explosive Device, right? So why that? Yes. Why that? Why that song for you? Well, I guess because um, I pretty only listen to Christian music. So when you asked me to pick something, I was kind of at a loss. So I looked back on my career and I knew that I worked with IEDs and I found a group called IEDs and it was jamming. So I thought it'd be a good way to start the conversation. It certainly was. It certainly was. You, you, well, you gave me a couple other, you gave me some Christian rock songs too, to like maybe also consider, but that just didn't, it didn't fit with the motif of the uh, old grab podcast. <laughs> I need a little bit more like a rock, a rocking one or something, you know, so. Well, you got it. That was jamming. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, thank you for agreeing to do this Old Grab podcast. You know, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago. You were just starting off with this Sally Port initiative, which is an AOG thing. And uh, so you wanted to talk about that and also gave us the opportunity to connect. And so, um, so thank you for leading on that effort. And can you just give us like the thumbnail sketch. Like what is, what is, what is the, what is Sally Port all about? Well, Sally Port is software. Uh, it's very kind of limited in, in what it can do. It, it's um, by a company called Hivebrite. And all of the societies have pages and they're wanting each of the classes to have a page. And you can geolocate any graduate on there through that. Um, it's basically going to replace the old list server that AOG had. So if you go on there right now and update your profile in AOG, it, they crosstalk. And eventually, uh, it, so it'll populate it on both places, but eventually only Sallyport will be out there for us to use. And the beauty of Sallyport is it has a lot of other features to it. Once we get everyone enrolled, it'll be way more useful, but it has a private like, um, like a Facebook site on it. It's not Facebook, but you can have those type of communications on there and, and it's private. So it's not out there like you put a picture out there where it, Facebook owns it. They have it. You know, it, this is just for us. So we can have communications on there. We can schedule events on there. So in the future, if we want to have a mini reunion like Holly and, and you were just talking about, we can get people to sign up on there. We can do certain functionalities through that that program. So it could be a real benefit to us if we choose to use the tools that Hivebrite is providing. So I should make a point to welcome my co-host as well. Uh, Holly has agreed to be a co-host tonight. So welcome, Holly. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. Thank you, Heather, for letting me share your podcast. Absolutely. Well, we, were, we, were, we were just briefly chatting. Holly had an idea about potentially trying to do an off-cycle off reunion in, in a different location. And I think you were talking about Louisville as a potential spot to to, yep. to do something like this. And so I was thinking the, kind of a bourbon tour, a bourbon tour, ooh. bourbon tour on Friday, and then maybe going instead of going to the Derby, since those tickets are so expensive, doing the Keeneland racetrack in Lexington, Kentucky on Saturday. So probably staying Bardstown or Lexington 
and uh, it would just kind of be a fun weekend. That would be awesome. And so one of the benefits of Sallyport would be we, we could see who's going to who's in that area to potentially help us with logistic support, um, potentially if, if, if Sallyport would show us geographically. Another thing that would be cool, I, I imagine, too, is, you know, if you have somebody like I'm getting ready to drive across the country with my daughter because um, mm -hmm. she's doing some program out in um, in New Mexico. And so, like, I could figure out, like, maybe who's where yeah. stopping off in Nashville and I'm going to go to Oklahoma and and, uh, and then drive over to New Mexico. So and then I'm going to ultimately end up in Dallas, too. And for things like, you know, Ke you know, Kenny Mintz, our classmates walking across the country. I got my uh, Kenny Mintz. This is I'm doing my, my little promo here. My Kenny, Kenny Mintz water bottle. This is a very high quality water bottle. I will tell you, if you get one of these things, it's worth every penny because it's not like one of these cheapy ones. Like it's highly insulated. It's really, really good. It makes everything makes your drink stay warm or, or cold, depending upon what you want. But it definitely is a very high quality. So I recommend it. But Kenny's walking from uh, the Lincoln Memorial to his to all the way to California to San Diego. I think it's Escanita or Escanitas or something, California yeah. over a seven month period. So he'll be going across the country and a lot of opportunity to link up with classmates and 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 be able to celebrate his his journey and his uh, what he's doing, which is which is going to be tremendous. Very cool. And yeah, he could plot his path or just like you, you could plot your path knowing maybe your stops. If people knew you were coming or if you knew you were going through people's hometowns, you could say, hey, I'm coming through and yeah. see him for lunch or something. That'd be pretty cool. I definitely want to try to do that. I'm going the 23rd of February to the 28th. That's when I'm driving out there. So that's a I'm short not. time to drive that far. It's five days. I mean, it's 400 miles a day. I could do that. Okay. That's not too bad. Heather, you just got back from vacation yourself, didn't you? Yes, we have a favorite all-inclusive resort in Cancun, Mexico called Ishkaret. It's spelled X-C-A-R-A-T. Highly recommend. They have theme park type things where you can drive like dune buggies and zip line. And I was up on the high wires doing monkey climbs and uh, challenging things even at age 52 and a half. And uh, it's always exciting. You know, we don't like to just sit around. So we love to go to Ishkaret. That was our third time. And Heather, tell us what your favorite drink was when you were there. Ooh, I guess I have to admit the Hennessy Cognac. All right. So, you know, I was a chemistry major at West Point. And uh, then I went on and got my PhD in analytical chemistry. And in the last two years, I've actually figured out that winemaking is a nice chemist task. So... Um, I've brewed about 12 batches and, um, I won't admit because it is illegal to make brandy in the state of Alabama, but, um, some wine, once you distill it, it becomes brandy. And so that's what, you know, cognac is just French brandy. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm experimenting and learning, um, products that others make and that I am dabbling in. So when you distill it down to make cognac or make brandy, are you just basically like flashing off the water or, or like what, what, what do you, is there a chemist? Like, is, what is actually happening to the, to the, to the drink? Oh, so it's in a, um, a sealed container. You heat it and you have a condensing coil on the top. And so you're taking off the high end volatiles 
which is basically what a distillation process is. So the first things come off are very toxic to you, the smaller molecules, methylene, uh, acetone, those kind of things, you throw all that away. Um, they have fancy words for it, heads, hearts, whatever. So um, you, you test that based, based on smell, um, once the toxic smell is gone. Then you collect the hearts, which is so you're basically vaporizing off the alcohol and recondensing it into a liquid form, dripping it into a separate container. So you're taking the alcohol out of the wine and making it into brandy. Cool. That's a pretty cool, pretty cool hobby. Yes. So it surprises me that it's that you said that it was illegal. If you call it moonshine, does that make it legal in Alabama? No, you cannot distill <laughs> anything legally except for water in the state of Alabama. Got and it. that is the official use of my distill. My still. Okay. We won't tell. I don't do it. Mm -hmm. No, wine is legal. So yeah, I've been, I made some fruit wines. Um, I've made some Pinot Noir. I've made some Pinot Gris. Um, I've made some mead, I made some cherry mead, some coffee mead. Mead is just distilled honey. Instead of sugar, you distill the honey. Um, yeah, so it's, it's been a, a real, it, I'm just playing. And my next thing I want to do is sake, which is Japanese. But I got to mm -hmm. figure out, I bought the, uh, what do you want to call it? The bacteria or whatever that you add to the rice. And I got to ferment the rice and then put the rice in. So I, I have to learn a little bit more about that before I go poison myself with sake. <laughs> yeah, be that's careful. A, <laughs> that's a pretty good application of a PhD in chemistry, though. Absolutely. You know, if you're going to retire, you need to make it fun. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of which, you've got some some more free time on your hands. You recently retired from the FBI after having served for what twenty some odd years in in retirement. Uh, you're you're now in retirement, right? Yes, I had uh, seventeen years with the FBI and nine and a half years in the military, counting my time at West Point. Yeah, because you could buy back your time at West Point, right? That's one of the yep, things. Yeah, it was right? active duty time. So yeah, I bought nine and a half years transferred it into the federal employee retirement system first. Uh, and then I tacked on an extra six months at the end because I had a lot of um, leave saved up. So the leave converts on and tax on at the end, sick leave. I, I had dinner this past week with several of our classmates, one of which is your company mate, Marty Barr. Uh, amen. So, yeah, so we, yeah, amen, amen. And so I was out in um, Carlisle walking with Kenny Mintz doing his training up for his is walk across America. And I, I find it, it's kind of like my own therapy going out there and walk in for, you know, 10, 12 miles with Kenny. And we're just having a good old time. Um, it was like, we're back in ranger school. All we're talking about is what food we're going to eat when we're done with this walk. You know, it was just it was so much fun. And uh, he goes to this place called the, I think it's called the Hamilton Diner. And they get these, they call them Hachi dogs. Which, um, Heather, you're from Ohio, right? Yeah, born and raised. Do you remember Skyline, the Skyline Coney, Coney dogs that they had out there? Skyline. It's like a, it's like a chain of restaurants or something. No, but Jamie, they, I'm from rural Ohio. We didn't have much. <laughs> well, they have these. Uh, so it's basically, it's basically just a chili dog, but really, really minced onions on this chili dog. And it's just, it's really good. So we had one of those, we had one of those things, but. But Marty Barr was saying when we were out to dinner, he was saying that he bought back his time because he's now a DA civilian and he's working toward he, like that on top of his career. I think he can double dip and 
have um, almost two retirements, but you can buy back your cadet time as a civilian. It's only you only have to pay 10% of what we were paid as cadets. Ah, 3%. 3%? Yes, sir. You, you buy back a year for like 500 bucks or something. Peanuts, right? yeah. Uh, so it is. You definitely, can't do that in the Army. No, no, but it's you definitely can't buy back good, those four years. Good way to go. Good way to go. So, yeah. I am, I am wearing a, uh, check out my pin here. This is my G, uh, a little G-Man pin, which was uh, a gift from our classmate, Sharon Bull, Sharon DeCrane Bull, who is my company mate, who just retired from the FBI as well. And, um, and I remarked that I like this pin in her, to her husband. And, and so he got one for me and sent it to me. So I'm wearing it today in honor of you and your retirement and also in honor of her. Awesome. So, so um, yeah, so congratulations on on your 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 service to our country and the opportunity to kind of kick back and I see you're at you're you're in your home gym there behind there huh that's a, that's pretty impressive uh pretty yeah impressive gym you got there it's a little busy but um yeah I I'm trying to stay fit although I must tell you <laughs> it's kind of a funny story that that picture uh, my FBI quote retirement picture the photographers were trying to set up. A studio to do the unit chiefs and they offered to do mine since I was getting ready to retire. I said, sure, that'd be great. So they sat me down kind of as a guinea pig, took my picture and gave it to me. And uh, I framed framed one for my husband. We put it up on the mantle because he's 30 years retired military. And we put it up there with his and his little four-year-old granddaughter was just here. And, you know, four-year-olds are brutally honest. And she looks up and she sees that picture and she says, Oh, that's you. I said, yeah. And she says, you're fat. <laughs> <I'm> like, yes. <laughs> so even though we work out <laughs> and try to stay fit, you know, um, pictures don't lie. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to share the picture here. There it is. There's your picture. I don't think that's a good picture. Come on, you're being hard on yourself. Hey, and look, the, the E and the D are backwards. I pointed that out to the photographers. Like, you might want to flip your flag around so Federal Bureau of Investigation is not backwards. <laughs> well, and I think, Heather, to your defense, the photographer didn't know that as you photograph people as we start getting older you're, my mom always said you go up and out. So you go up and out and you want the photographer to go down. And so if you go up and out, the photographer goes down, then you don't have all of that goes kind of away. So the photographer didn't do you any favors because it looks like he was going kind of down yeah. from the down up. You know, Kenny, Kenny, Mintz is, uh, he's an expert at this too. Whenever he takes a selfie, he's like, takes it like way up, yes. looking up at it. So he, he took a selfie of me with him this summer and somehow the angle, I looked like I was about 160 pounds. Like yeah. I was like, like super thin. I was like, well, he was like, wow, you look super fit in this picture. I'm like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame that thing or something. I don't know. So it's a well, my neighborhood has about 30 to 40 miles of hiking trails right here. We're in like a horseshoe shape kind of mountainous area. And my husband and I, we hike a lot, you know, we'll go out on a six mile hike, whatnot. So I, I do feel that we are pretty fit, even though the picture does look, my face, it looks a little chunky, but Hiking is so awesome. I fell back love in it. love with hiking. You know, like ever since I walked with Scotty Halstead this summer and now walking with Kenny and I walk with my wife a lot. Uh, it's, it's, and it's awesome. And, and um, Holly, you, you hooked me up with that uh, Trail of the Fallen recently. Yeah. Right? 
I and was, you just uh, did it in the snow. I did it in the snow. Yeah, it was it was really cool. It was really cool. That's this is a trail. It's by West Point. I guess people, I don't know how long people have been doing it for, but there's like there's hundreds of rocks up there that people bring up with their, like they're cut, they're painted with somebody's name and they put them up there and there's benches, there's a, there's a light, there's two flags. I, how long has that been going on for Holly? It was, um, weren't you there at my retirement when Hank told I, the story? No, because I, I had to take Matt Lewis back to the airport that morning. Oh, got it. Um, so yeah, so Hank told us the story. It was, uh, he's retired, had worked in, in DMI. I think Hank is class of 76 or 77 from West Point. And his son was in the Ranger Regiment um, right when desert, well, when uh, Iraq and Afghanistan started. And Hank had just retired and he ended up going back over as a contractor because he couldn't stand that his son was fighting and he wasn't fighting. And Hank is kind of like that Tex Turner type guy. Uh, maybe all the people who work in DMI are like that. Anyway, so when his son was, when he came back after being a Blackwater contractor and he knew now all of these guys who had been, who were getting killed, he, he just felt like he had to do something. So he would walk up to that hill and every time he would walk up, he would bring a rock. And he started doing it on his own and would write the names. And that was in 2005. And so then other people, because it was a trail that was up there, just started seeing that pile and started adding to it. And then I think in like 2013 or 14, an Eagle Scout kind of put the, um, put the trail marker up there and kind of named it Trail of the Fallen. And so now it's a thing. So now the pile, it's pretty incredible because every single rock up there or huge piece of granite because they've got granite benches were all carried up there wow yeah for me it was actually a pretty like cathartic experience going up there in the snow and it was like it was a beautiful winter day but i was up there for a funeral for a dear friend of mine who's class of 94 who recently passed away and it mm -hmm. for me it was it was a great day to be able to do that and walk that with my wife and my daughter but uh, i had the experience of doing all this planning and executing and whatnot for the funeral. And Heather, I know that's something that you also yep. experienced at West Point. Um, and we should talk about that too, because you single-handedly made it, or, or, well, I wouldn't say single-handedly, you and your, your company mates made sure that we were able to memorialize uh, your company mate at our 25th reunion. And yep. it wasn't easy to do. Nope. So, so tell me a little bit about that story. Well, I had been in contact with Dory DeYoung, Eric's wife, and she said, hey, they're not going to let me do it the weekend of the reunion. And so I called and started asking questions. And they're like, look, it's a football weekend. We don't do funerals at West Point on football weekends. And they started telling me all of the things that they could not provide. And I'm like, well, can we just do it on our own? So they wouldn't provide a chaplain. Well, guess what? We have a chaplain, Kevin Wainwright, our classmate. So I called him and he agreed to do the, to do the service for us. And um, then, you know, no color guard. Okay, well, I called IB, my four, called him up and says, hey, you got some cadets that could come be a color guard for us? Cadets volunteered and they came out to the cemetery and they did the color guard for us. I had a bagpiper cadet volunteer. Actually had a um, guy show up, which I didn't ask for, which was fabulous from the band uh, that played taps for us. Um, so yeah, it was really cool. And I had volunteers from my company that uh, folded the flag for us. 
that gave the uology. Uh, Stacy Manning actually carried the cremains into the columbarium for us. So everybody just pitched in and made it happen. And they, they just you know, gave us the green light to do it our way. It wasn't the quote official way, but you know what was more important than quote doing it the official way was doing it when the classmates could be there and we could grieve together. Well, hats off to you for pushing through. I, I also experienced that same level of bureaucracy with the, with the folks working at the, at the cemetery. It was like, you know, you can't do a service uh, because of COVID, you can't do it in the, in the chapel, in the old cadet chapel there, there's a limit of 50 people, you know, there's just every, every, like the dates change a bunch of times, every, at every corner, I ended up running into some problem, and um, it turns out, though, that the post chaplain is a former member of the class of 94, so then I found that person, he was able to run interference, and then once AOG got into it, and, and Holly, you could speak to this. AOG recently, three years ago, they created a position. It's a memorial affairs liaison, and which you didn't have, Heather. If you had had it, it would have it would have actually probably gone a lot easier for you. And this uh, Barbara St. John, her name is, she's phenomenal. Like, and she basically said, look, like those folks at the cemetery, this is their job. It's just yep. what they do. And it's maybe, it's just like, it's a kind of, Every, every other day, it's the same thing. But for us, we really take, you know, we'll help you through this. We'll, we'll provide that compassionate service to the family. And she was great. Yeah, so awesome. it's, it's a great service that AOG now does. And it's actually an old grad's widow that donated the money to endow the position because AOG had a part-time person. They were just thinking, well, maybe we need to do something. And they had a part-time person in there, actually one of my friends. And she did such a good job with this old grad's funeral that the widow said, I want everyone to have this and it needs to be there. So she gave the money to have a full-time person there, which is Barbara now. And, um, and now they also have a, a part-time position too. So it's having done many funerals, um, having handed the flags at many funerals uh, when I was on active duty, it was amazing how many people were just so thankful that you know, of all the things that AOG does, that is probably the one that's the most impactful. Yeah, I, I have to say it was, it, I, I wrote a letter to the president of AOG just thanking him for, for, for that service, saying that that was just such an amazing thing that, that they had. I mean, once we got past the initial bureaucracy of dealing with the, with the cemetery folks, having that personal touch was, and that person was with us the entire day uh -huh. through the whole, you know, service and the, repassed and and so it was it was it was just great it was great to, to have that so it's good it's nice thing that aog has that service for us um so so heather um so so now that you're retired uh mm. you're what what are what are your plans here like you mentioned you've been doing a lot of um volunteering you've been kind of rerouting into into your community what what's your day-to-day -day looking like these days Ooh, well, it's been a whirlwind since I retired officially on the 30th but my, of November, but the 24th of November was my last day at work. Before I even hit that weekend, my dad had a stroke and I had to go up to Ohio um, because I have the medical power of attorney. We got him all straightened up and he, he, he is amazing. He recovered very quickly. Uh, we had a week scheduled in Dollywood with an aunt and uncle already. And then a friend of mine in Virginia died from COVID that I was in ministry with when I was living there. So we went up for the funeral and then, my gosh, what happened? Um, 
my husband Todd's son who lives in Korea uh, came and stayed with us for a month and then we just went to Cancun. So I am trying to figure out what retirement looks like, but God has put on my heart uh, the, the ladies of this community. I'm in a, a private quote gated community, although the gates don't work because um, they want to sell more houses. They keep them up all day and then, you know, they don't really work at night either. But at Halloween time, the ladies all dressed up as witches. And apparently that offended some people. But I said, hey, well, why don't we offer an alternative? And so, you know, great, but nothing got kicked off. So I got permission uh, from our board, and I am starting a ladies' Bible study this Thursday for the community. And more than just Bible study, I mean, Bible study is important for a Christian to learn um, and grow. But we want to do community service projects to help the community here, whether it's you know picking up trash or the welcome wagon for new people. You know, us as military, when you move, didn't that mean something when a neighbor rang your doorbell and brought over some cookies or something and said, welcome to our neighborhood and, and wanted to meet you? Um, I've been in this neighborhood. Uh, I just got married in 2019. And I, I didn't move in right away because my house was closer to work <laughs> than his house. But um, when I moved in here, you know, I just went to work every day and I haven't met my neighbors. I'm like, you know, I need to be part of a community and the community needs to be functional and not just a bunch of Facebook. Wow, wow, wow. This is broke. This is broke. Let's, you know, let's complain about this. No, let's do something about it. So I'm trying to facilitate a group that can be the hands and feet for the community, people that um, want to help the community and not just be negative. You know, putting a negative comment on Facebook doesn't solve any problems. So in the short term, that's where I feel that I'm led um, to serve in my community. You know, we also serve at church. Uh, we're still both parts of the singles group. Um, because I went to the singles group when I moved there. That's where I met my husband. So we're kind of informal leaders there. And we actually run a car care ministry, which is kind of relates to the military as well, because what they do is they service cars. It's not just an oil change. They'll give it a safety inspection. And if they can fix something, they go ahead and fix it. They replace light bulbs, belts. Uh, they'll give them certificates to go to the auto zone and get new windshield wiper blades for women who are single moms wives of deployed soldiers or widows. So um, that's a great ministry we do once a quarter, you know, to serve the community at large. So I'm just trying to figure out how to use my skills um, to serve and help others. I think this is a common uh, challenge for a lot of us that are in these transition points in their lives, you know, whether we're retiring from the army or from government service or relocating to a new home or you know, there's, there's just a lot moving, a lot of moving parts in our, in our age group of folks. And yeah. um, I was, I'm reminded of one thing that General Bramlett said to me when I had the podcast with him is how important volunteering was for him and his wife. I think her name was Judy when they relocated to Hawaii for the first time yeah. that they, that they, this was their, this was the, the conduit by which they were able to make these connections. And, you know, they were able to give something and they got something in return. So this is a way to, to get things uh, going. I'll also put a plug out that there's, all, there's oftentimes a lot of veteran service type organizations that are in communities locally. That, that is kind of the key thing, I think, to effective transition for a lot of our service members is being able, being able to have strong veteran-backed 
organizations that are local. And so, you know, I know that um, like uh, our classmate, Mike Eastman had talked about how there are some areas of the country that are stronger than others in terms of accepting and transitioning service members. But that's another place to get connected, I think, is uh, in the veteran service organization space. Well, and also, you know, I think the local societies. So um, I've been serving on the board of the West Point Society of the Tennessee Valley for the last couple of years is the cadet. Um, what was it called? <laughs> I remember the name of my job. Cadet representation, something like that. So but basically when the cadets would come here to Redstone Arsenal and the local community to do their AIABs, their academic individual achievement, um, help me out, Holly, program or what development program? Yeah, it's an AIAD. Program. Yeah. My society would invite them out for dinner. So I would get in touch with the through the dean's office. I'd get a list of who's coming, what time frame. And usually, you know, over the three month period, we have to do three different events to touch them because they each would come for maybe two weeks. Um, we'd have them out for dinner, chit chat with them, learn about what's going on at the academy, share with them what's, you know, what societies are about. Um, sometimes it was dinner. Sometimes we took them to the baseball game. Uh, so I think it's important to let people know, like the cadets and also like my classmates that live here in the area, hey, you can join the society, have support group. We do things together and we're here to help each other. So I think it's just another avenue um, for that veteran support. And there's not, no stronger support than the long gray line. Well, and I think it's a it's a cool way to to find your Jamie, you'll love that I'm going to say, find your tribe. But as you're kind of venturing out, I mean, our, our classmates and our West Point connections were our kind of original tribe, so to speak, when we were young adults. Um, because I say in high school, you, you've got a tribe, but that was when you were in high school, you were teenagers. So, so when, you go, when you volunteer with a West Point society, it kind of reconnects you and really kind of helps you come full circle, understanding, okay, I, I see why I did go to West Point. Um, I know I've heard a lot of uh, classmates, John Robb in particular, who when he started volunteering with his West Point Society, and then he got involved with the AOG, and he, he always says he's a much better alumni than he was a cadet, because he's now done so much volunteering for West Point, um, but he said it's, it's, the best thing he's ever done because he's met so many more people that he never would have met had he not gotten involved with those West Point Society. So many great friends. And as a woman, I think that's important. Our president, he was so wanting to get a woman involved. These guys didn't have ladies in their class. Wow. You know, we were the 11th class with women. He's like, I want to diversify. I mean, they're a bunch of old white guys with gray hair. You know, they 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 want to include everyone <laughs> <laughs> like that. And so um, he's been very grateful that I've been willing to in invest. So um, hopefully we can get more ladies. We got Julie Wood living right down the street. So I I'm working on her. My company but, mate. My company yeah. mate, Julie Wood. Yeah. And also Dave Baxter's down there too. Yes, he is. Yeah. So so the, uh, I want to reorient ourselves to our timeline and the arc of the podcast. We're talking about the here and now. We're going to go back to pre-West Point mm. and bring ourselves back up to present day through your Army career and your career. Mm -hmm. But you are in that area because that's where the FBI has a laboratory, right? That's where you were there working at the laboratory for the FBI? Yes. So after I got my PhD, um, I was 
I was part of the uh, American Chemical Society, even while I was at West Point, you know, as a cadet, we had the, the American Chemical Society kind of as a little club thing. Um, and you get a free magazine every month. And in the back, there's these gray pages and there's sections for people looking for jobs and sections for people that are trying to hire. And I saw this job in there uh, at the FBI. And so I applied and I and I got it. Um, so I was hired to do research and it's really funny is the, the guy who hired me, he says, what well, I selected you cause you have a mechanical engineering degree. <laughs> cause that was my, my track was, was mechanical engineering. He wanted me to build a breadboard instrument. Um, my degree was in atomic spectroscopy. So looking at things at the elemental level, um, yes. And so the FBI lab is at Quantico, Virginia since 2004. So that was right at the time frame. I went up there in 2003. Um, they were just getting set up. So I never worked at the lab that was in DC. I worked at Quantico, Virginia the whole time. And in 2012, I had changed my position into working with what's called the Terrorist Explosive Device Analytical Center, TDAC. Um, TDAC was created in 2003 as an interagency organization, basically to help DOD, because DOD was overseas. Soldiers were getting blown up with improvised explosive devices. And um, the military was limited on, they're not a um, law enforcement entity. So they didn't have some of the privileges to prosecute like we do. So we formed a team and they would ship us all of the evidence, we call it evidence to them as just bomb parts, whether it's a, a device that they disassemble, you know, separate the explosives, send us the parts, or if it's post detonation, you know, let's, let's get the little pieces of debris, whatnot. We do all the forensics. So forensics is the science used for law. So we would do all of the examinations on it, such as fingerprints, DNA, uh, bomb techs would try to reassemble or, or assume how the device was made or was designed to function. We had in electrical engineers that could actually look at the frequencies for cell phones, how they were, uh, or anything, a, a key fob, how was the device set off? Was it a, was it a drone? How's it communicating? We can steal the data, steal, we didn't say that. We can um, exploit the data from the chips that are on the drones. Then we can go back to the military and say, hey, they're, they're operating on these frequencies. And they were actually in the early days reprogramming jammers and things based on the data that we were giving them from the devices that they were sending us. So it was really cool working hand in hand with the military. It, it kind of tied in nicely um, with my career. You know, early on, I was told, you know, you should have a thread of continuity in your career. And I kind of thought, huh, that's interesting because I have a degree in chemistry from the military academy. I went military police and then I go back and get my PhD in chemistry and then work for a law enforcement agency doing chemistry. So it was kind of cool to support the military doing chemistry. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. So like, what was, what was your typical day like when you were there? Like, 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 was it, I mean, I, I was, you're not getting bomb material every single day, right? So, oh, yes, we are. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, my oh. gosh. Yes. So, um, 
TDAC was formed in 2003. Now, I wasn't in TDAC at that point. You know, I started in the research unit 2006. I moved to uh, chemical biological kind of stuff and did radiological nuclear work until 2012. To answer your question, in 2012, I, I switched over to TDAC. And then in 2015, they opened up the lab here in Huntsville. So um, a typical day in TDAC back in the early days. So it's kind of a two humped curve. You had the Iraq war, tons of stuff coming in and then it tapered off, right? Then you had Afghanistan. It picked all the way back up and come back down. And then we have GWAT, right? The global war on terror. And we would get devices from all kinds of places, Tunisia, um, Colombia, um, I don't know. Still a lot of stuff from Syria, Yemen, uh, you know, the Middle East, but just just everywhere, anybody, Africa, Kenya, um, countries that don't have the forensic capabilities to exploit a device fully on their own would send it to our legal attache's office in their country, who would then send it to us at the lab. And then we would give the data back to them uh, kind of as an independent third party so it can be prosecuted in a court of law. And then our examiners could actually testify like in a Kenyan court or whatever they needed to. Wow. So, so how does it, how does it I'm sorry, Jamie, did you ever go on location either or did, were you only just in the lab? Um, for IEDs, I did in the lab. But prior to that, I was a radiological nuclear examiner. So um, we would examine through Department of Energy Labs anything that was radioactive. And I did several um, seminars supporting State Department in former Soviet countries, whether it was Georgia or Ukraine or Armenia, um, where I went on site and helped them. We actually had a case uh, were some interdicted uh, uranium-235 uh, from that had been former Soviet material uh, that had been confiscated in one of the countries over there and they sent it to us. We sent it out to Lawrence Livermore where we have an FBI lab for radioactive things built into their facility. Um, and we examined it there and gave them the results back. And then we actually, um, the Livermore scientist went and testified in that court in Georgia wow. to prosecute the, the um, black market tears. So I did go on site some, I spent a lot of time at a lot of the department of energy labs, whether it was Los Alamos or the national Nevada test site, which is now Nevada national uh, security site, which is where we would take any improvised explosive devices. So like, a nuclear device, if it ever got out of state control, it's then considered to be improvised because they don't know what was done with it, right? So yeah. the FBI would then have to take it out there, um, put it in an underground facility, disassemble it, take the pieces, parts out. Um, a lot of the, the non-explosive parts would go to Savannah River National Lab, or we have another FBI laboratory where we can put things in like isolation tents, uh, photograph, do all the traditional forensics, which is really cool. We had what was called the hazardous evidence analysis team or HEAT. 
where these were DNA examiners, fingerprint examiners, photographers, uh, trace examiners, you know, all the different ones were trained to work in that facility and to execute their examinations under these um, special safety protocols to get the forensics so we could then have data to prosecute in court. Wow. So yeah, I, I, I had a big fat, I, for, for giggles, I saved all my travel forms throughout my career. And it was about a, a four inch stack from my travels over the years. You just did, did you, some cool stuff. Did you end up in some of these locations? Like, you know, like overseas, like helping to, to, to look at the stuff that was over there? I did not because in my role in the, in terrorist explosive device analytical center TDAP, I was, I started out as a management and program analyst uh, managing our contracts. I was doing a lot of our research kind of things uh, and personnel because back in the day, TDAP didn't have government bodies. We had to contract a lot of them out. No, that has changed since we moved to Huntsville. We've hired a lot of people, Um, but I, um, I then transitioned in 2017 to being a supervisor in our evidence management unit, which was a scientific position. I was a supervisory physical scientist. So when you asked me how many cases did we receive in a day, and I didn't really answer that. In the early days, we could receive 100 in a day. Wow. And we're still working cases that are, um, I'm embarrassed to say, over five years old because they were lower priority at the time and we're trying to, trying to get caught up on them. Um, but we do have a priority schedule and we don't get that many in right now. And actually since COVID, um, it's affected a lot of, lot of things. So we really haven't gotten a whole lot of cases in over the last two years. But, um, if you remember in Kabul, not long ago, as the Americans were pulling out, there was a VBID bomb right there at the airport. And so, um, some people gathered up some of the shrapnel and things. Of course, all of the, the, the soldiers go to Dover and um, we send a team up there and we swab the bodies so that we can run explosive tests on that to see what type of explosive was used. Um, it's kind of gross, but we get the shrapnel is extracted from their bodies and they give it to us to examine it so we can kind of figure out what the device was that was used. Wow. Yeah. Intense. So no, I was not really on scene for that, but I was in the lab every day, receiving things, supervising people, inventorying all the things that came in, uh, making sure they were routed to the right disciplines for examination, that you always do non-destructive testing before destructive testing, making sure all the communications are handled and the, you know, that the examiners are sending out reports at the end, that kind of thing. Wow. What a, what a career, what, what a contribution to, and it's fascinating to know that we had a classmate doing all that work for our country. So thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, one, one last question on this topic, cause I'm just curious, and then we'll go to the, to the pre-1987, but are there other laboratories besides the FBI? Like does the CIA, does the CIA have a sister laboratory or ATF or DEA and like I'm, I, my experience working with government labs is that there's some of this like competitive behavior that that an almost internecine competition that happens between these laboratories. Did you experience that with FBI? 
Yes. <laughs> yes. And so all of those agencies do have labs. Um, the CIA, they're a tricky one to work with. Um, but our main competitor actually turned out to be uh, the Army's lab at Fort Gillum, the USACIL, the United States Army Crime Lab, because they decided that they didn't want to give their evidence to us. And then they tried to just say that they were the same level of laboratory. So there's, there's three levels. A level one would be like a um, SOCOM collector out with a kit, you know, collecting a <coughs> fingerprint or co make, collecting a sample and just running a quick little field test on it. Uh, level two are your, your forensic labs that are actually on site overseas. And those are all run through um, Defense, Forensic, Defense Science Forensic Center, which is tied up with USACIL there at Fort Gillum. So then they decided that they wanted to say that they're a level three lab, whereas the FBI was the only strategic level three laboratory in the country. And so the benefit to that is we had all the databases, right? So then you could search everything. So we didn't have just the military stuff. We had all the FBI stuff. So we had a lot of databases that could crosstalk and give you the broader picture. And they decided that, hey, um, we need funding, right? Because after the um, global war on terror, all the, uh, what do they call that? The um, overseas OCO money. Once that started drying up, people really started fighting. It was, it was a fist fight for who's yeah. going to be funded. So you have to have more mission in order to get more money. So they started saying, well, we're a level three lab. We can do all the same examinations. So it got it got to be kind of ugly. And that was my last trip I took was actually to their lab to try to, um, you know, put some teams together so we could share data more efficiently. I, I don't know how we solve for that, but I saw the same thing happen with these development laboratories in my uh -huh. previous in my previous role where I was doing I was doing product development for uh, the Air Force and Naval Research Laboratory and NASA and the various different laboratories are all they're all like fighting with each other over who whose material was better. And um, even like deliberately like sabotaging the other one's work, right. you know, and it's just, I, I don't know what to do, but it, it's, it sounds, I, I'm, I'm, fam I'm familiar with this type of uh, professional tension that happens. Yes. So for fingerprints, I, I probably shouldn't share this story, but they would do the fingerprints on stuff and then they would wad it all up and then send it to us. And then our guys would have to sit there and unwad it because they're thinking, well, we got all, we already got the fingerprints off of it. You don't need to look at it, but guess what? We have some more different techniques that we could actually go get additional fingerprints and, you know, and show that this other person was involved in creating this device. So we did finally get that kind of sabotage stuff worked out and said, look, you know, you send it to us and they were very plain on a lot of the stuff because they were directed by HSPD 19 to give it to us. But so they would mark on the form for storage, you know, in our quote repository. And that's one of the contracts I managed for a while was our quote warehouse, which we weren't allowed to call it a warehouse. So it was a repository where we have stored over a million items of IED evidence from back from 2003 on 
um, so that we can do comparisons and things, or let's say we want to try a new technique, but we don't want to try a new technique on a brand new piece of evidence because we don't know if it's going to destroy it or not. We pull out a similar item from the inventory that's already been examined, tested on that, and then go try it on the new the new evidence. So, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. That's, that's the stuff I don't miss about the Army is when you're sitting there saying we all have the same mission or just kind of government agencies. You're like, we are all have the same mission. We are all trying to do something for the country, all trying to do what's right. Why are we, why are we fighting with each other? But it all has to do with that mm -hmm. scarcity of resources. Yes. And so everyone is vying for resources. Um, but that's what I just don't miss. <laughs> Part of it was the timeline, too, because sometimes it would take a long time to get the evidence back to us, and then we would have to prioritize it. So sometimes, yeah, they didn't get the answer right away. So that's the benefit. If you, you can do things overseas before it comes to us, great. But if you're going to destroy something that we could have got data from, if you'd just given us more time, you really need to take the time and ship it to us. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I could talk all about the... Uh the same similar situations you know the air force research laboratory the air force has the pmo responsible for these big aircraft and you know there's no way they want to have a navy research product or a nasa research product flying on an air force frame you know mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen and so where it takes it it would be a very very unique situation and so that was the thing that i saw was just like these guys were like deliberately like withholding data. They were like, you know, dissing the materials that were developed by NASA um, that were better, quite frankly. And so there's material flying on the Joint Strike Fighter today that is inferior to the products that were in development because of the fact that one was developed in the Air Force Research Lab, but the other one was developed by NASA. So that That's was, uh, yeah, well. But they were good partners. I mean, that, it was their airframes that bought the stuff back to us obviously we weren't flying the bureau planes over there to get it so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. beggars can't be choosers you have to work together and get it done yeah so let's 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 turn the hands of time back to uh, mm. 19 then you know 1987 and before rural ohio yeah near pittsburgh you are child number two in your family the only girl right boy girl boy yeah between two boys yeah tell me what tell me what life was like for you growing up and what made you want to go to West Point? Well, I guess I was a tomboy, um, first girl on the little league team. And I was in 4-H. I had rabbits, I loved my animals, had motorcycle, would ride all day long out, you know, big five acre rural, rural yard, you know, with woods as far as you could see behind us. So I did very well on land nav at West Point because I was land navin from the time I was a little kid. You know, you had to learn to go down the hill, the creeks at the bottom, you go up over the hill, and you learn to read that stuff. My mom had a big brass police whistle. She blew it once. You had to holler out where you were so she could know, you know, what direction you were. If she blew it twice, that meant get your butt home. And, and you had to get your butt home. So I, I learned. Uh, how to navigate pretty well as a youngster, um, day or night, it didn't matter. Um, so I don't know, it was a rural community. Um, we had in my high school, one guy had gone to, I think the Coast Guard Academy at some point. And then of course, my older brother was the class of 89. He, he went to West Point. 
He was so, in B2. Yes, he was. And I hear he was quite the haze. So my classmates in quite. B2. <laughs> Bill was quite the haze. I said once once he he softened slightly, I think once he kind of like had that re that realization like, oh, I've got a sister and now I've got these females. I think that was like, okay. So initially he was really, really hard on everybody. And then I, I feel like he slightly softened on the females because he kind of realized, oh, he saw what other people were doing to us. Um, but no, he was quite the haze. So we went home at Thanksgiving time, clean beer, and he was trying to make me cut that pumpkin pie with a template. <laughs> and I had to get my mom to intervene. So. Yeah, I could see that. But, you know, I, I want to say that, um, you know, I always was trying to earn my way. I didn't want anything given to me. And I think when I learned about West Point, I want to say I even knew it before my older brother did. I don't know how he got interested in West Point, but um, I did all the applications myself. I got out my mom's typewriter and I typed it all out. And I wanted to feel like, you know, I did this. No one else is taking credit for it. And I didn't want my dad who, you know, thought I should be an architect and go to Virginia Tech because that's where he went. You know, I wanted to do it my way. And on my own, I was I was a hardhead, right? You know, but um, being that, I'll tell this quick little story that kind of ties into the future. I, I was one of the first girls in Little League. My mom did support me in that kind of stuff. You know, I, we fought to, to, to get involved because they didn't have girls sports. And by the time I got to high school, you know, in the early 80s, well, first off, we had K through eight or K through seven in elementary school and our high school was grades eight to 12. The rural farm school, about 100 kids per class. And uh, I, I got on the softball team um, because they had girls sports. But remember, this is early 80s, so there weren't a lot of girls sports. And I became the catcher because I was the only one who could throw the ball from home plate to second base. But my pitcher was so bad that I was like this leapfrog having to, you know, catch all these wild pitches. And, um, you know, I, I got accolades, team captain in junior, senior year in the Ohio Valley Athletic Conference, whatever, this and that. But when I went to West Point, you know, I remember back in Beast Barracks, they gave you the opportunity to go to some of the um, core squad sports and, and practice with them and try it out. Well, you know, coach had actually recruited a catcher for the from the class of 91 don't you guys remember laura marr i don't believe that she graduated um but i walked onto that team as a catcher and bernie bernie uh, i think her name was sanders was catching she was the first to eat my plebe year but by yearling year i was the starting catcher and i i lettered <laughs> you know for calling mccabe was my pitcher she's a fabulous pitcher wow yeah yeah, and I didn't even know that you could call pitches because my pitchers in high school were so bad, you're just lucky to catch it. So I had to learn all about how to read batters' positions and where they stand in the box and watch tapes on how they, they bat and all that so I could learn to call the right pitches for Colleen so she didn't have to shake me off six times before she finally just went ahead and threw it and let me catch it. But um, I, I want to just say this quickly. I, you know, Colleen was inducted into the uh, Army Hall of Fame. And I wasn't able to go. I wasn't earning much money at that time. <laughs> and I wasn't able to go. But um, this past reunion, I took the time to go see it. And I would encourage any of you to go see it. It is a very well done museum type thing that's right there in the football stadium. And I went in there with my husband and we're reading all about, you know, MacArthur and all these things that all these great 
people did. Um, Holly, I think you're in there, and uh, I'm not in there. My picture's in there. Yes, your I'm picture not in there. is in there. <laughs> and so is uh, Colleen Priscillo. She was yep. inducted. Yep. Um, but. I was shocked and all that my pictures in there because our softball team did so well when Colleen yeah. was pitching. I was like, hey, here's me. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's a side note. But yeah, so from um uh, growing up though, Heather, to say that you caught um that tells you how good you were because for you to catch for a Hall of Fame pitcher. Yeah, and, she, yeah. and I was from Podunk, Ohio, you know, yeah. just trying to jump and catch the ball wherever it went. So I don't have people stealing bases on me. But well, you're part of the reason. Any <laughs> any pitcher will ever say part of the reason they're so good is because they got a good catcher. So good job. Yeah. Well, thank you. But yeah, so um, that's it. Were, you know, were I, there I, any any other particularly memorable moments from your softball career that like like a like you threw somebody out at second, somebody tried to run you over at home home plate. I mean, like, <laughs> were, were there any other? Uh, I have a nice scar on my wrist from Mel Smith. Um, it practiced one day, you know, coach would rotate us around when we we're batting, you'd go take a position in the field. And I think I was playing second base or shortstop. I can't remember at practice. And I put the tag down on the bag and she ran right across my glove and my wrist. You know, we wore metal cleats. It just cut my arm right open. Was Mel Smith 89, class of 89, black, a black? Yes, yes, yes. She was in my company. She (laughs) was such a haze. And she she was great, though. Well, she kid me. I remember her forever. (laughs) I remember her forever, too, because you know what she did to me? I remember I called her sir once. I did that once to not to her, but. And she said, do I look like a sir, Schleck? Do I look like a sir to you? I'm like, no, man. Well, what would make you think that I look like a sir? No excuse, ma'am. Tell me the difference between a sir and a ma'am. Tell me Uh the difference. And I'm like, well, uh, uh, ma'am, women are uh, usually uh, smaller in stature than men. Okay, and what else? And she just kept on hazing me. Like, what else? What else? What else? And she's waiting for me. I, I says, <laughs> men have penises, women have vaginas. And she was, she just burst out laughing because that's what she was going for. That she want, she was trying to get me to say that, like get to write, like after I went through this whole litany of things, that's what she said. And uh, oh my, she was hilarious. She, I mean, she was hilarious, but she had high standards. And Muso George will say to you to this day that she was one of the main reasons why he made it through that place. She was his squad leader, uh-huh. first semester plebe year. She had very high standards, and she um, and she came to his she came to his promotion to to I don't know if she came wow. to promotion in general, but because I think she stayed in for a career at least twenty years or so. And yeah, so, she was engineers, I believe. Yeah, yeah, she was she was great. She's yep. funny that we. No, we had some good people on the team. We did. Jamie, to your uh, to your credit, because they made us all cut our hair so short, I think it was sometimes easy to say, "Sir" for the ma'ams, because our hair was just so yeah. so short back then. Well, I. I, I it, sh- it was easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, my roommate Linda Gella, who who left after um, yearling year, she uh, called Lisa Shea, sir. 
And she said the same thing. Do I look like a servant? <laughs> Lynn was on. She said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, she, she was, she was something else. She was something else. Um, so, so what other, what other uh, things were driving your interest in West Point? Like, was it, I mean, the fact that it was free, did that matter a lot for your family or were, were, were you looking at other schools as a potential? Um, I was offered a four-year ROTC scholarship as well. Um, I came across that certificate the, the other day. Um, um, I think that was somewhere in Florida. But I was looking at Boston College and I think maybe Virginia Tech because that's where dad wanted me to go. That's where him and his twin went and they were in the core there. Um, I can't remember. I didn't apply to that school in Florida, though, I don't think. So I, I just don't remember. It's been a long time. So we talked about this in the pre-call. You do not remember RDA very well. You, you don't remember who dropped you off or what the story was with your whether your brother was there or not. You you, you don't remember that, huh? No, um, I remember. Oh, my gosh. I remember the granny panties that my mom had to buy me <laughs> to fulfill the list. <laughs> and the granny bras. We had both granny panties, granny bras. We had to bring all that stuff. Got stuff the guys didn't have to bring. We had to bring like 12 pair of each. You did? You, they didn't fit you with your undergarments there? You no, because they couldn't figure that out. Uh. We had to bring, I think we had to bring like 18 pair of underwear. And they said that, you know, they had to be the granny panties, the big high ones. <laughs> then we had to bring like eight or 10 regular bras and like 10 sports bras. I just found one of those sports <laughs> bras because my mom, I had labeled and you could see Fishburne 3608 labeled in it. <laughs> I can just imagine some some O three like like sending out the information. He's probably working for the admissions office, like you know, trying to figure out like you know what the what the packing list is supposed to be, and and so it's crazy. I mean, it was when you think back, when you think back, like when we came in, they just it was still even though we were the eleventh class, they still they still had no idea. I, I tell this story often about. Um, years later, about five years after I went to West Point, I'm moving back from Germany to the States and I had to go get some shots. And they said, okay, you know, let me see what you need. And so they're looking at the shot records and they were like, what, why'd you get this shot? And I'm like, what shot? And they're like, I don't know. It's, you know, whatever it was. And I said, well, what shot is it? And they said, well, it's the shot typically given to men when they go to college. And I said, did I get it on 1 July, 1987? And they're like, yeah, you did. And I'm like, yep. So whatever shot, we got some shot, Heather, that all the men got. And I remember going, yeah, they just gave it to us. We couldn't say anything. It was just like, okay. Yeah. It was probably saltpeter. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> they don't give it anymore. So it's, yeah. yeah. So one other R day story now that has triggered my memory. Uh, you know, those rooms down there below Washington Hall where we went in there and we got bathrobes issued, I believe. And one of the men there told me, he says, we're all out of pink ones right now. But if you'll go down there and ask them that they, they should give you a pink one. And I'm thinking, I hate the color pink. You know, I, I won't wear anything pink. And I really don't want a pink bathrobe. But if I'm supposed to have one, you know, I, I guess I need to go ask for it. So I'm at the right thing, you know, and so... 
they laughed at me and you know told me no honey they're all the same down at wb down at wb4 yeah. that'd probably yeah. be pretty funny that'd be pretty funny yeah. Um, so the you show too. They didn't have our shoe sizes. Nope, that's right. I wore a boot size too big, and then I, the I cleats, did too. The cleats they issued me were too big. They said, "Well, just yeah. take them. You can exchange them later." And I had them on display. There were those Adidas ones that had the different colored panels yeah. you could chain out. I had those for years because you know I'm a course squad cleat, so it didn't really matter. But I eventually I took them up to the C store and I swapped them out for a pair that was the right size. So yeah. Yeah, my my boots that I walked back from dude all our road marches on were size nine Woo. because they were men's size nine. And I didn't know the difference. I had never put on boots. So I'm like, oh, I guess these they feel like boots. I don't know. And then yeah. when I had blisters all at the end, and one of my classmates was like, How come your boots are so much bigger than your shoes? And I'm like, I don't know. I thought they're boots. <laughs> yeah. Mine they're were too big nine. as well. They what didn't have my size. size. So these are close enough. Just wear them. Okay. Like, what size do you wear? Nine. I didn't know. <laughs> so who was your who was your roommate in uh, Beast? And who was in your bug who was in your, your beast squad? So another funny story. Yeah. So my roommate in Beast was Lynn Yagella. And I hate the name Heather. It's just a fairy name. It's hard to say. There's no nickname for it so I was like when I go to college I'm gonna change my name to Lynn and so that's a nice consonant you can say it and uh, so I get in my room and there's Lynn and I say hi my name's Lynn what's yours and she laughs and says Lynn and I'm like oh just forget it just call me Heather <laughs> <laughs> but who was on my B squad I remember Dwight Hunt um hunt dog oh he getting so much trouble uh a guy named sam he didn't make it and he was always in trouble too um what was that other guy's name again with the b i don't remember see i don't i don't remember so much from west point like a guy like alex rogers he remembers everything he's unbelievable he's got a mind like a steel trap he is the ultimate gray hog encyclopedia knowledge person i just wanted to get through the day and, and get some sleep but beast i remember uh, craig borschelt was my squad leader i remember he wanted to show us how to fold our bras properly he borrowed a bra from carolyn uh, moore that sounds like that sounds like a, a freakish thing to be yeah. brought it in showed us how to fold it cup on cup and tuck the stuff under it, put it in the drawer and he was so proud of himself he was handling the ladies but i remember him you know they're trying to be all mean during beast and he's banging on the door he's got to make sure we're decent before he comes barging in and those stupid cadet nightgowns would get all you know up around you so you have to be getting out of bed and pulling that thing down <laughs> they didn't fit i traded mine with greg mcgarro so he gave my night shirt to his girlfriend and i took the big guys football size pajamas because i was like those are much better that's a good idea were you in uh what what barracks were you were your barracks like like one like one floor or were you in like oh for beast we were in the divisions divisions yeah yeah and oh I guess God. the class of 90 were bad, bad, bad. Do you remember that? They went around into that blue paint and they painted I-beam and I-4 all over everything, all over campus, over the tank and everything. And so we all had to go out there and clean all that up. It was a spirit mm -hmm. mission they did. And so then I guess they had 
some alcohol issues too. So they, they, they wouldn't let them stay in the divisions unsupervised. So they moved us over into short wing MacArthur. Yeah. So were you on the softball team all four years? No. Um, I, did I mention I was a chemistry major? That was a good bit of studying I had to do. And I got into organic chemistry and I was rocking a D for a while. And I thought, you know, softball's not going to get me anywhere. There's nothing to do in softball after West Point. So um, I quit the team after five semesters and um, ended up getting a B in organic chemistry. And I made the Dean's list every semester that I didn't play ball. So there was kind of a direct correlation. Now I love playing ball, but you know, my coach left too. And then we had an interim for a while. I don't remember major, what was his name? Oh, big tall black guy. He was a basketball player for- um, Winton. Yes, Winton. He yeah. filled in for a year and then they got coach Flowers and. I had an altercation with him. So I was pretty much done with that. So, um, yeah, he I didn't play all the time. He was the boxing guy too, I think. Right. He, he, he coached boxing. He did. I think he taught in DPE, but I remember when they brought him down kind of like intro to do the softball, Gary Winton. Yeah. That's, that's him. Yeah. Yeah. Our classmate, Doug Winton has a, has a story because he wasn't like exactly the, the, the most gifted boxer and like, uh, Major went and pulled him aside and said, you're not doing justice to the last name right now. Step it up. So yeah. who, who else were chemistry majors of our classmates? Do, do, do you recall uh, who else? Tim Lewicki, I think Andy Gorski, Didi Broderick. Um, there was only six it's of us. Kind of a small, yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of a small <laughs> major, right? It's not a very popular major. No, you know, and here's another funny story. Now that you mentioned that, you know, I remember taking chemistry yearling year and I remember major Blackwell and he, he pulled me aside and he's like, if you ever thought about majoring in chemistry, I'm like, no, I'm no good at this, you know, cause I didn't feel like I was really grasping it. And he said, Oh no, you, you should. So I majored in it. Cause he told me I should, but what besides organic chemistry, what were the other like really tough classes that you had to take? You said magic was tough. Uh, right? Magic was pretty hard. Um, physical chemistry. PCAM, uh, yeah. Yeah. But actually, you know, one of the funnest classes I took uh, was thermodynamics. I really enjoyed that. It, it ties a lot in with PCAM, a lot of it's the same stuff. But I struggled, um, I think, with like uh, s- statistics and differential equations. I really didn't understand that. Do you remember um, Major Fiedler Prinslow instructor? I she do. Was an, and yeah, I had her. Really funny because I ended up working for her brother-in-law, who is an infantry guy. He was our um, brigade XO that I supported when I was MP mm-hmm. uh, platoon leader. But so I ran into her cross paths with her again later, which is kind of funny. But so yeah. You, so you commissioned MP. What, what was there? Was that your first choice in branch? It was. Um, you know, I believed I went to West Point to be a military officer and, and that whatever you majored in really didn't matter. Um, I really love, like I said, land nav tactics, that kind of stuff. I, I grew up playing rough with the boys, riding motorcycles, this, that, um, and I, 
I thought that infantry would be the truest thing that you could do coming out of West Point, but obviously our class wasn't allowed. The women weren't allowed to branch. It just wasn't something to do. So I thought the MP would be the, the closest thing to maneuver that I could actually do. Uh, and there were six of us, six women uh, that became MP officers. And that would be like Mickey Olson and Joanna Prager, who did her whole career. Jo- uh-huh. She married Ken Moore. Uh, Deb Smith, Julie Wood, uh, Tracy Hedersheit. So, wow. Yeah, we ended up doing OBC in June because they needed to fill up the June class. So we had a really short break after graduation before we had to go to OBC. God, that's wow. so bad. Wow. Yeah. Heather, going back to, uh, to I-4, just real quickly. So you and Stacy ended up being the only two females in that company, right? In our class. Yeah, because Laura Buchanan, she quit during Beast Barracks. So yeah, it was just me and Stacy. So did you guys room together all four years? Like most no, of no, we didn't because she got on like battalion staff. Okay. And for a while I roomed with um one semester I roomed with Carrie Hester, who was a first a year ahead of me. Uh, one semester I room with Jen Braddock, who was a year behind me and in a different company. Okay. So, um, I think I shared a room with, uh, Joni, um, one of the black ladies in the class of 90 as well. I think her Carrie and me room together. So they just tried to make it so that, um, you know, they filled up the rooms as best they could. None of us could room by ourselves, I guess. Yeah. We, we had a similar situation, but I remember that's how I met you because I was friends with Stacy yeah. and then you guys were roommates. So at some, at some point, that's how I met a lot of the guys in your company because I was friends with Stacy. Yeah. I remember that Nadia King was friends with Stacy. Yep. Stacy had friends. I didn't really have friends. I, I, I don't remember a lot about West Point. I just got through it. You know, it was, it was hard every day, all the homework and all the things you had to do every day seemed like an eternity. You know, I was just reading in the howitzer, the little, you know, that little write up that they did about us under each of our first pictures. Mm-hmm. And it, it talks about me, um, my relationship with God and studies being first. And it said um, something about executing the um, full rack defilade maneuver that I was very good at that. And then that was true. I was always needing a nap. <laughs> <laughs> we all did. I always said, I remember graduating. I remember when I, when we were getting ready to graduate and thinking to myself, how am I going to, how am I going to go through my day without having a nap? Because it seemed like we all like those naps after lunch or those naps in between class. When I I start working, I'm not going to be able to take a nap. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Stacy was a history major. So uh, you know, yeah. we kind of, she would go to bed a little earlier than me every night. So yeah, there was a little bit of complaints about how loud I brushed my teeth and I got in my lockbox too much and whatnot, but <laughs> no, Stacy's cool. She was so fit. I was jealous of her, but you know, because I did core squad, she always got stuck doing Sandhurst too. Cause I, I yeah. am not, not the most fit person, you know, at West Point, I was always in the gold group. You know, I wasn't much of a runner. I was more of a push-up person, you know, but. Um, but now with your gym, you look like you're in shape. You probably could get and get down and knock out some push-ups. I can do a few, yeah. Probably not more than 20 at this point, but uh, I don't really work that by your, 
I'm impressed by your kettlebell set there. I'm looking at that. You got like a little pink kettlebell. You got a couple of kettlebells back yeah, there. Yeah, I got kettlebells. I got the full dumbbell. I do mostly bench. dumbbells, the flat bench over here. And then I have my uh, inclined bench. And then I have an elliptical, a treadmill, and a recumbent bike. So, oh, geez. Yeah. I wow. can work out. Good for you. Good for you. I like variety, you know. And what I love about working out and what I hated about West Point and working out is I don't have to compete. I don't have to be pressured. I'm not on anybody's clock. If I want to go hiking, I'm going to go hike for as long as I want. I love to be out in nature. I love to feel close to God. You know, working out is so good for you. And and it's so much more fun when you don't have somebody yelling at you or you don't feel like you can't keep up with the person in front of you because they got a longer stride or, you know, I'm sure I'm five, three and a half. So, um, I really struggled on a lot of those runs and, uh, you know, carrying, a, I could carry my rucksack, but my rucksack and my weapon and going uphill and keeping up with the guys, you know, I really struggled, uh, like going out to Lake Frederick. It's embarrassing when you can't keep up, but, and then part of that just gets us the fear monger coming. Oh, you're, you're falling behind, you're falling behind. And I think that even hurts your performance worse. Yeah. It's so good for mental health too, you know, especially yes. like in this time, yes. you know, post COVID and, or yes. mid, the tail end of COVID, you got to get out there. You got to work out. Got to absolutely got to move. Yeah. And, and hiking is just so awesome to be able to do that. So. I love it. Um, so, so, so did all five MP, were, were there any male MP no, uh, no, because our class, if you remember, because yeah, of the war, detail. Yeah. The, the class of 90 was mandated by law for all of the men to go combat arms. And if you remember, our class, even though it was no longer mandated, they fought for it. And then they said, oh, we're going to get all combat arms slots for the men. So all the men have to go combat arms. Well, therefore, they couldn't be MP officers. So all six slots went to women. Did you all have to go to that June OBC? All oh, yes, all? we did. We went to that all together. Wow. That's and I got the wow. white briefcase. What does that mean? How many, how many weeks leave did you actually get? So you didn't get 60 days? Oh, no, I think we got like two. We graduated June 1st. I think I was there mid-June. I think it was two weeks we got. Oh, God, that sucks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's what your orders say. That's what you do. Yep. So, so then, um, you had the, uh, esteemed, uh, um, opportunity as I guess to bring, were you the first woman platoon leader to bring, uh, or a company commander to bring uh, an entire male unit to, uh, to NTC? Um, I don't know if I was the first, but probably um, I was in first infantry division. I was in first MP company. Um, and there were two maneuver brigades, first brigade and second brigade. And so one MP platoon would support each of those in direct support. And the others would stay back in general support, working in the division rear. And the lieutenant who had um, the platoon his had a daughter had a terminal condition. And so he had to back out last minute. So like, who's going to fill in and take this platoon out to the national training center. And, um, they offered me up to the, um, infantry brigade commander and he was a West pointer, Tom Metz. 
Colonel Tom Metz. And he's like, yeah, send her up because she's a West Pointer. And, and which I thought was really cool uh, that, you know, in the infantry and, you know, they have West Pointers and, and MPs, you don't really have that top cover. And so I got to go to the National Training Center with an all-male platoon. And um, yeah, that was back in 1992. And I did it again. I switched over to the other brigade. I did it again the following year, an all-male platoon. And it wasn't until 1996 that women were allowed to fill that position of direct support platoon leader or you know, have females in the direct support platoons that went up with the maneuver brigades. I mean, I was out front. They they sent us up to um, mark the breach lanes, so we were actually in front of the tanks sometimes. And that that's interesting because I remember that night um, after all the fighting was done, um, I just stretched out across the hood of my Humvee and went to sleep for a few hours. And when I woke up in the morning, it's daylight, and there's tanks there, and you know, and there's a guy doing his business off the edge of the tank. I'm like, mm, yeah. And then now I get it. That's why, you know, they don't really want women up here with the guys, <laughs> but he didn't know I was up there and whatever. So I saw it was Willie, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what other memorable moments did you have from your time serving in the army as a, as the, as an MP officer? Um, Wow. Well, one of the themes that I, I kind of have uh, throughout my our discussions and your pre-questionnaire, you know, was like doing the right thing. And, you know, I said, you might be right, but you not, might not win. And um, so, you know, being that I had in my very early days for two years been a direct support platoon leader, um, every division has a, a provo marshal right, who's a lieutenant colonel. And there's a deputy division provo marshal, which is an 04 slot. Um, that position became available and there was a young captain and he didn't want it. And he was really kind of flopsy anyway. They offered me that 04 position as an 01 and I took it. <laughs> and I, I had to learn all that stuff that they teach at Cast Cubed on my own because I needed it because as the deputy division provo marshal, I wrote the MP annex to all division op boards and I wrote the rear operations annex to all of the op boards, um, which was a, a huge stretch. And so for me personally, but I was supported, they have what's called a division plans platoon in the G3, um, all the, the different like signal and all the different um, support branches come together and send their representative up there to make the plans platoon and you work for the G3 to, to do the, the plans for every division order, every maneuver, every battle, everything like that. So I um, <laughs> I got to be the deputy division provo marshal and I kicked butt. All my, my ratings were great. Um, and then fourth ID asked us to come out for this exercise called Iron Page to evaluate, to be evaluators for them. And the provo marshal out there was doing things non-MP doctrinally. <clears throat> and so I was supposed to fill out these forms saying, you know, how's he doing? And so I went to the majors who were in my plans with two and I said, look, he's not doing this according to MP doctrine. And he's, 
know, he's telling these infantry guys, this is how we're supposed to be doing it, but we're, this is not how we do it. And they're like, well, you need to write it up. Just, you know, it is what it is. And so I did. Uh, and they weren't real happy. He was not very happy with me as a first lieutenant, um, writing out essentially the lieutenant colonel and his major deputy out there. But anyway, so move on, right? They're not in my chain of command at the time. So uh, I go to my advanced course. Guess who shows up? This lieutenant colonel who was the, the division provo marshal for 4th ID. He's now a battalion commander for the MP basic training stuff. And um, actually, they ended up cutting me orders to go be a company commander for him. Yeah. And he had caused some issues for me along the way. So, yeah, I may have been right, but it bit me in the butt because he had his friends. Uh, I was given an opportunity to go to Cast Cubed and they wouldn't let me go. They turned down a slot instead of letting me go because his friend was in the G1 and you know, like I said, we don't have a lot of West Pointers in the MPs. So I kind of took took that on the nose. Um, it followed me. And so I ended up just resigning from the Army at that point. My ex, Shane Peters, was already out. He got out in the early out under Clinton. So he'd been following me around as my dependent for two and a half years already. So I'm like, this is stupid. You know, I was uh, taking martial arts. I was the last... I was six months from getting my black belt. I was going to school at Jacksonville State, getting my uh, master's in criminal justice, was close to finishing that. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to pack it up and leave because I cannot work for this guy. He is not going to give me a fair shake because he's still pissed off at me for, you know, giving him a bad rating on his exercise. Wow. That's unfortunate. Yeah, well, but you learn, right? And maybe yep. things happen for a reason, right? So that then you exited and then you ended up uh, jumping back into a different career, yep. still, still serving our country, yep. working in the FBI, uh, getting your PhD. Yep. Um, that's, uh, that's fascinating. So, so we are kind of moving towards the end of our podcast here. And so I want to make sure we kind of cover all the bases. We talked about the here and now. We talked about pre-West Point, West Point, the Army. Uh, there's this common theme i think throughout your career about service about trying to do the right thing Mm -hmm. um i know that you're also a very um uh faith-filled person and so that's been a big part of your journey as well and all going back to your howitzer entry as well you know so yeah um, i was a protestant sunday school teacher all four years that i was there at west point and chaplain pitt would do bible studies with us before we would go teach the kids. I used, I taught mostly fifth and sixth grade girls. Um, and then, you know, we go to church at the chapel after that. Um, Clint Caramath was a good friend of mine and fellow Sunday school teacher. And we'd go to church and go to, to lunch there at the, the mess hall. Yeah. Um, oh, good for you. Yeah, I, I think that um, doing the right thing is very important. Uh, the cadet prayer doing the harder right instead of the easier wrong. I actually incorporated that into my retirement speech. Um, I would tell my employees that integrity is like virginity. Once you give it away, you can't get it back. You know, I just think that 
you know, obviously I needed to learn some better skills and how to handle disagreements with my supervisors when I'm right, even though they're not going to like it. I probably um, was not prepared to fully handle those to the best. So I, I had some negative fallout, both that example I just gave with the military and it happened to me again um, in the FBI. But I think you know, when I when I got out of um, the army, I went and worked in a candle factory as a supervisor. Um, I read right on the manufacturing floor. I had floors going 24 seven uh, production lines running. And I had a little box office out there on the floor. And, and I remember writing on my whiteboard a verse, Ephesians um, 6, 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not man. You know, I think no matter what you do, you need to do it to the best of your ability. Um, and another life verse of mine, um, second Corinthians one, three, and four is praise be to God, the father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we receive from God. And I've gone through a lot of hard knocks in life. I went through a tough divorce. You know, I had that into my military career kind of crazy. I actually kind of lost my job at the FBI and, and got moved into TDAC um, through some conflict uh, with a unit chief. And it wasn't just me in that case, she was crazy. And there was nine of us that lost our jobs. But um, I think that whatever we go through, we have to look in the mirror and say, I did the right thing, you know, and not compromise ourselves because like I say, with the virginity, you can't get it back. So you always need to do the right thing. Uh, and even if you have negative consequences, but then that just ties back to my second verse is that, you know, you go through a hard time, but what you learn from that, how you learn to get through that, the, the self-examination you do makes you a stronger person. And that makes you ready then to go help other people who are going through tough times. I can't tell you how many how many people knocked on my door, like even at the candle factory, and it was mostly women, which was weird because I was used to working with men and I had all these ladies and all their problems with kids and whatnot and babysitters. And, you know, they all come crying, come literally crying to my office. And, you know, I, it's a pleasure to be able to listen to someone and help them and comfort them and give them guidance and help them through a difficult situation. And in my church in Virginia, I did what's called Stephen ministry. It's like 45 hours of training, learning to walk alongside someone who's going through a hard time. And I actually became a Stephen leader in the church because um, I really feel strongly that you have to have a purpose in life. You, you have to give back. It's, it's not about you and what you can get out of life. It's what you can give to others. And one of my other sayings is you got to play the hand you're dealt. You know, people at work, they try to get rid of the bad employees and try to steal your good employees. And what I was like, no, my job as a leader is to look at my employees and evaluate them, use their strengths, evaluate their weaknesses and help them improve on their weaknesses and make the team with who you have, not be trying to jockey around and get different people who you have is sufficient to do the job. It's your job as a leader to figure out how to make that team work and how to make them grow. So my last few years at the Bureau were a lot of fun. I, I got a lot of new employees and I had the opportunity to really mentor and it, it was a lot of fun. And I, and I really enjoyed um, helping them figure themselves out and who they are and 
you know, what's okay to do and not okay to do in the professional environment. So yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm humbled by that. I'm thinking like how I'm going to try to up my own yep. game based upon what you just said. Um, that was pretty inspiring. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you for this time tonight. It was great getting to uh, talk to you and know you a little bit and um, just so honored and still so impressed by who, who you are and, and who our classmates are. So thank you for this time tonight. I'm going to let the credits roll out. I'm going to stop the live feed. Uh, thank you, everybody who joined us on the Old Grab podcast. We had a lot of people come. I'm sorry I didn't get to any of the comments in the comment feed. They were kind of delayed on Facebook, but uh, we'll try to improve that for next time. Thank you, everybody, for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Jamie, for letting me do it. Thank you. Thank, thank you, guys. Holly. Thank you for, for being my co-host. And we'll have other All co-hosts, right. I think, here. So you guys stay on the line here. I'm going to stop the live feed. Um, okay. So live feed is stopped. Cool. Heather, you rocked. You were, were so great. You were so great. Wow. Thank good you. job. I made notes. <laughs> that was good. Great. You did so well. You did we so didn't well. talk Thanks. about microbial forensics, though, in a Marathax case. I was all ready well, for that. I, I, well, I had told Jamie, Heather, I said, um, I said, she's done some really badass shit. I said, I remember talking to you at the reunion. I said, and I was just sitting there going, holy moly. I said, I'm not worthy. So I. It's I, funny I, that you say that, Holly, because I feel like I'm the one who is just in all of my classmates and all the things that you guys have accomplished. And I've always been this, I felt like a back burner person. So that's funny how we each no, have that perception. I mean, just, just, and the way that you described it tonight, I mean, you were doing it so nonchalant, like, yeah, we got all, all this stuff and then we sent it back out. I mean, it was, it was just so cool. So it was, it was awesome. Thank you. It was great. It was great. And a great message too, about having to lead people through difficult times. I think that's another thing too, that's going to, really resonate with folks so I i've seen a that. lot of bad leaders oh uh, gosh we should do a uh we should do a, a old grad podcast that's just the women and say okay tell us about your very first assignment in the army and and give us a give us a quick glimpse of how that how that worked i i always used to tell the cadets when i taught them i said first my first day as a second lieutenant in the my army assignment, I knock on the door just like they told us to, to our battalion commander, sir, second lieutenant Fishburne reports. And I, no shit, he reaches out his hand and he said, Holly, nice to meet you. I just want to let you know I've worked with a lot of female officers and female NCOs and I'm not going to hold anything against you for it. And so I'm like, do you say thank you? I mean, like, you don't even know what to say to that. And then it proceeded for three years. I was the only female officer in the whole battalion. And he just ridiculed me oh. nonstop. And every time I would say something to like my company commander, he'd be like, you know how he is with you. And I'm like, well, if you know how he is with me, then why aren't you saying something? I'm like yeah, the second lieutenant. Yeah, yeah. I was but so your, blessed. Your situation is the same thing, you know, where you brought up, you're like, something's not right here. And then you end up getting screwed for it. So yeah. then you're like, okay, next time, am I going to bring it up? No. Well, maybe not because I'm going to get screwed. And that, that same thing happened to me one time too. You got to choose the harder right over the easier wrong. Yeah. That's yeah, tough. tough. Well, 
Good times tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Holly, for joining <laughs> too. I think Granny Panties, thanks for making that memory. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good, I love that. That's like one of those things that you kind of forget about, but you're like, how come the guys didn't have to bring all this shit? We had to like show up with big old bags. Like if you look at the R day, like videos of us going in at R day, the guys are going in with nothing or like this little teeny backpack and the girls are going in with these big old bags. <laughs> and then we had to lay it all out on the floor, right? And sort it out. Yes. Let me put my granny panties out right in front of you. Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm Jamie, they specified that they couldn't be like bikini. I mean, back then they didn't even have thongs but they were like no bikini no this they had to be like hipster you know whatever they were which is exactly what heather said so what did i should have asked you on the what do they do now holly because obviously you know uh, lexi went through she they tell bring... everybody now they tell guys and girls to bring in their own underwear oh really okay yeah do they get to choose the style that they want they tell them so they uh you know like for my son i remember bringing him in the uh like the nike the nike stuff and i didn't get them the real stuff i'm like we'll get you good stuff when you get done with bees because it's going to get trash but the you know like the, Box, the boxer briefs boxer briefs yes and... yeah 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 and so for girls it's the same thing and so they actually give you a packing list and the socks uh they tell you to come in with socks come in with underwear and so now it's like a, a pretty big packing list so when you see kids come in now they come in with big old bags because they tell them to bring in so much but i think it's it's mainly for a comfort. They do have some stuff there. So if someone comes in with nothing and, or I think they give everybody like a standard, maybe certain number of pair, but if you bring in your good socks, they're not going to take them. I agree with that. You know, I went to the live agent trainer because the chemical school is, was at McClellan with the MP school. And they thought it would be really cool for us if they got the MPs to go through the live nerve agent trainer. So we got to do that, got to do that. And since I was going to be stationed there, I thought, oh, I better do it because they'll hold it against me. They issued us everything, bras, everything, because at the end you strip down naked to just your pro mask and you disinfect yeah. and then you hold your breath, throw the mask off and then run into the locker room and all that stuff gets sterilized, you know, to get the nerve agent off of it. Wow. So yeah, I, that wasn't so comfortable wearing someone's bleached out bra. So I'm glad we got to bring right. it on. <laughs> So, you know, I noticed that I'm still recording right now. This has been fascinating having this conversation. I probably will put this onto the uh, recorded, ver the uh, pod podcast version, if that's okay. Because I think this behind the scenes stuff is so cool to hear about, like, about the underwear thing, whatever, Holly. I, we, we have, because we haven't said anything here that I wouldn't, I would feel uncomfortable no. putting on that. So let's, uh, sometimes the most fascinating conversations are the ones that I have before. I hit record and after I hit record, like I, like Heather, like you and I had a great, we talked for an hour as a, as a pre-call. The pre-call is usually like 15 to 30 minutes, but we spoke for an hour. We had such a great time connecting. So, um, well then, then let me, let me add this, you know, I was grew up in rural Ohio and I didn't wear anything but tennis shoes. So, and we didn't have that stuff called asphalt or concrete to walk on. It was dirt and gravel. So when I went to West Point and they gave me those like low quarters and I was walking on asphalt, my knees blew up like watermelons because, oh, wow. yeah. And that's why I struggled so much on the road marches and stuff because my knees hurt so bad. I had never had that experience. So it wasn't like I was such a slacker. I mean, they even offered, the medics offered to, to, to pull the water off with a syringe. So I'm like, oh, cause I don't like needles and yeah. Wow. So 
it was um, it was tough adapting because it was a whole different lifestyle for me. Yeah. Hey, what's your brother up to now? Uh, he retired back in 2014 uh, as a lieutenant colonel with 24 years in. And he is still here in town because this was his last duty station was Redstone Arsenal as a deputy commander for the Corps of Engineers. Uh, and he uh, still lives in Madison and he's been working as a contractor um, for KBR Wiley. Okay. Uh, and he does um, manages contracts and writes up the contract, the statements of work for bid and stuff like that, or like engineering controls, that kind of stuff. He actually had a contract with West Point, I think, with Johnson Controls or something like that up there. All right. Well, you can let him know that I. I asked for him. I always think that most of most of the guys who are class of 88 89 when they hear that I actually stayed and stayed in the army that long they probably would have said what? oh she, she was the <laughs> one who wouldn't have stayed. You know, and I think it always surprises them a little bit. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast.